and welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss subject matter division courts in their respective states, the different roles judges play, and sovereign immunity. Justice Beth Walker terms subject matter division courts as divisions of existing courts that handle specific kinds of cases. Subject matter division courts are assigned a specific subject matter or case type. This allows the judge to become an expert at handling a specific case type, think business litigation courts for example. Subject matter courts operate exactly like traditional courts but have a singular focus which results in a streamlined process and a presiding judge who is especially practiced in that area. Our Lady Justices also discuss courts of claims and how sovereign immunity plays a significant role in how these claims are handled. Finally, in the lightning round, the Justices share what distractions they face when working from their home offices, what social media sites they turn to in their free time, and how acts of kindness have touched their lives recently. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast out there hosted by three sitting state Supreme Court justices. I'm Justice Beth Walker of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. With me today, as always, are my dear friends, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of Michigan and Arkansas Justice Rhonda Wood. Rhonda, what's new in Arkansas? Well, as we tape this, it's October in election year. So we are busy, busy with election matters. And in Arkansas, we just finished our Appeals on Wheels that we do where we travel um, twice a year to local high schools and colleges. So we just did that in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And um, we had about 300 students that it filled the capacity of that room and 50 members of the public. And it was great. We had the local legislators out. So that was really fun. And so that is kind of where we are right now in Arkansas. Bridget, what about you? Similar um, in Michigan, election season is busy for courts. So we are starting to see election emergency cases, which obviously have to be decided on an expedited basis, usually, at least many of them do. So that's keeping us busy this week. We also normally go on the road in October, but we just couldn't get a date together. Um, So we're not doing it until the spring. But The weather has been beautiful, which is saying something in Michigan in late October. I had two outdoor meals this weekend, which is pretty incredible for the last weekend in October in Michigan. The leaves on the trees are absolutely stunning. Nobody knows what happened this year, but it's been it's been beautiful. There's a lot to appreciate about what's going on in Michigan right now. How about West Virginia? What's happening there? Well, we had a visit to our high school, we call it the Laws Program, just a couple of weeks ago, and we went to Beckley, West Virginia, and we actually had eight different high schools participating in attending our oral arguments. So it was a big success, and our Chief Justice was very excited because he is from Beckley, and so this was his hometown, and we had a really, really great day. And then last week, we had our state's judicial conference, which is, uh, and I know you all have similar meetings from time to time, but As it stands right now, our trial judges, which are called circuit judges in West Virginia, intermediate court judges and Supreme Court justices all get together twice a year for continuing education. They are great conferences and actually attending that meeting got me thinking about all the different kinds of cases that are handled in state courts and all the different roles that judges play. You know, at our conference, there were these meetings for the various judges who serve in different capacities, drug courts 
and business courts and other things. And so it's a perfect transition to the topic of today's podcast. One of the interesting and difficult parts of doing an educational podcast about state courts is that states handle things differently. We call our courts different things, district courts, circuit courts, trial courts, all of that. We use different terminology, uh, but it is also one of the cool things about state courts is that each state has uh, a court system that serves its needs or is striving to serve its changing needs. So for example, as our loyal listeners will remember, we devoted an episode last season to talking about treatment courts, which is kind of an umbrella term referring to adult and juvenile drug courts, veterans courts, DWI courts, family treatment courts, just to name a few. And so today we're going to talk about a different kind of quote court, which I'm calling subject matter courts because I couldn't come up with a better term for them. These are special courts or sometimes divisions of existing courts that handle specific kind of cases. And rather than doing an overview right now of all these different kinds, let's just jump right into our discussion and talk about business courts. According to my research, about 27 states have business courts, and sometimes they're called commercial courts. Uh, the most famous for the lawyers out there will recognize this, of course, is the Delaware Court of Chancery, which is a famous and longstanding court system to handle specifically business disputes, and that's what business courts do. So let's talk about whether we have them, if we have them, how we handle these kinds of cases, if we've talked about having them, if we haven't. So Bridget, does Michigan have business courts, and can you tell us about them? Yes, Michigan does have business courts, uh, but we've only had them since 2012. In 2012, the legislature passed a statute requiring circuit courts in Michigan where there are three or more judges to create a specialized business court, which is, like you said, really a subject matter docket in a way. In some jurisdictions, the designated business court judge will do other cases as well because the business court docket wouldn't be a full-time uh, load. In other jurisdictions, there are, for example, Wayne County, where Detroit is, there are three business court judges who do only business court cases full-time. So it's the statute is flexible enough that we can sort of make sure we have workloads balanced in the courts where there is a business court judge. Each business court has to develop a local administrative order that gets approved by the, by the state court administrative office. And the idea there is that we can bring some predictability and stability to the way those courts are run throughout the state and make sure those docket issues are covered. And the idea behind them, of course, was to give businesses a judge with specialized knowledge and therefore maybe a, a more efficient way to litigate business court cases. So businesses didn't get stuck in, in litigation for years and years and years. We have a system where the business court judges can upload their opinions. They're supposed to upload their opinions, a website that the Supreme Court keeps. And the idea there is so that businesses and their lawyers could research the same, you know, research questions that were relevant and kind of understand what the business court judges were thinking about those issues. I will tell you that there are some business court judges who, who write more than others, and that could well be reflect just their docket. There, there could be all kinds of reasons for that. But I think we had over 500 opinions from one star business court judge 
who recently got put on the Court of Appeals. And there were fewer from some of the others. But the idea is to, is to create a database so businesses and their lawyers could kind of understand what the law is as applied to their businesses. That might have been too long an answer, Beth. I apologize. How about in Arkansas, Rhonda? Do you have business courts? Well, so your answer was not too long because I have nothing related because <laughs> there aren't any in Arkansas. So it was perfect timing. No, we don't. Yeah, we don't have any business courts at all. So this is really interesting to me. So Beth, what about West Virginia? So there must have been something going on nationally in 2012, because that's when our statute was passed, or just before 2012. I think there was a, a study of it first, of course, as there often is in state government. But it was our business court division was set up by statute and also by our one of our trial court rules, Rule 29. And it's a division of our existing trial courts. So the way it works is that a panel of seven judges from uh, all of our trial judges across the state. Um, this, the chief justice with the approval of the rest of the court appoints seven of these judges. And we try to do it regionally so that there are trial judges all over the state to sit on what is essentially a panel of judges. And if the parties or a trial judge wants to send and wants a case to be considered by this special panel of business court judges, if it's a business court case, then it can be referred to them and they handle it as a group. And so it changed from wherever the case is pending, whatever county it may be pending in, it then gets assigned to the business court. Uh, and the business court sort of steps in the shoes of the trial court and is essentially a trial court and handles that case. And so it is solely for, and I'm sure it's true in Michigan's commercial disputes, and they're specifically listed what what, what qualifies and doesn't. For example, uh, my beloved area of employment law was excluded from the business courts. It's kind of more like an individual claim, I suppose the rationale would go, than a, quote, business claim. Our business court handles a lot of especially small business disputes, actually. You know, the, of course, larger companies have disputes what too, but we have a lot of small and family-owned businesses in West Virginia, and the business court is a place where I think they feel comfortable with these judges who do have specialized knowledge and sort of an, uh, an aptitude for business cases, an interest in business cases. They can go and get their matter resolved. So it's not necessarily faster although it's designed to be quicker. It uses ours, and I'm sure others do, these judges get a lot of training in alternative dispute resolution so that they can find creative ways to work through, even more creative ways to work toward these disputes. And for example, when the, when the case is assigned to business court, when the chief justice says, yes, this is going to business court, it's assigned a trial judge and also a resolution judge. And so these judges have the resolution does, judge doesn't rule on anything in the case and the trial judge doesn't get involved in the, any mediation that might take place. And that's their effort to try to uh, work through these cases uh, kind of differently than our regular trial courts can. Um, but it's the same appeal process. If it does go to trial or if there's a final order uh, entered by the business court, then it gets appealed uh, now to the intermediate court, uh, our new court, uh, and then on to the Supreme Court, just like uh, other cases. So does yours appeal the same way, Bridget, in Michigan? It does. It's The business court is just like any other trial court. And so if either side is unhappy with a, a, a decision or an order of the business court, 
they follow the regular appellate rules and go to the intermediate appellate court and then perhaps to the Supreme Court. Yep, exactly the same. Well, my answer was kind of long too. So uh, we made up for the fact that uh, <laughs> that Arkansas is not a business court, but maybe they will now. Now that yeah, we now you know what to do, Rhonda. Get, yeah. get yourself a business court. No, I'm really interested in that. So our and our legislature may be interested. They just created a tax appeals commission. So I think they're interested in the business side. So who knows? I'm sure they're all listening to our podcast and and we'll walk away with it. <laughs> I'm sure they are. So many legislators listening to our podcast, I'm sure. So I want to talk about another division of our trial courts in West Virginia and see if you two have something similar, although I don't think you do because I did do a little research and checked out your websites to see. Um, so I'll just tell you about our mass litigation panel. Either of you may not have it, but anyway, it is a little bit unique. It was created in 2008 by our trial court rule 26. And like the business court, it's a panel of existing trial judges. So these are folks, again, elected as trial judges. And just like the business court judges, they do this on top of their regular caseload. And I forgot to say that with business court judges. Um, it's kind of a special assignment, no extra pay, as they often say, no extra uh, other than job satisfaction. And, and these judges who do this do get a lot of satisfaction, whether it's the business court or the mass litigation panel. Our mass litigation panel does mass litigation. And for those of our non-lawyers, the best way to describe it is what folks think of as class actions or litigation that gets complicated quickly when there are things like large accidents, catastrophic events, mass tort claims. Like you, you know, folks have heard about cases filed about faulty um, medical equipment, for example, things that are handled all together in order to promote sort of resolving them at the same time. We have that mechanism in West Virginia and our mass litigation panel actually handles those cases. Uh, they are referred using a similar process as the business court. Um, either party can ask that the case be assigned to the mass litigation panel. The mass litigation panel has special skills and actually was our first court in West Virginia to use electronic filing, as you might guess, as you two know, these kind of cases, is a, they are a lot of paperwork and millions and millions of documents and now emails and all kinds of things. And so uh, it pioneered our electronic case management in West Virginia, which is kind of interesting. An example of a matter that's pending right now in our mass litigation panel are the opioid cases. And so various iterations, for example, the newest one assigned to our mass litigation panel are the are the cases relating to babies born affected by opioids. And so that's just one example. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway. Rhonda, do you have anything similar in Arkansas? And if not, are the, do these kinds of mass tort cases when they're filed in Arkansas have any kind of special handling procedures? Yeah, we don't have any sort of special procedure or set up right now in Arkansas. And it's a little daunting. So our trial courts, you know, we're all general jurisdiction. And, you know, I, I was thinking back, I remember I, I had one time, you know, on the bench that on the trial court, I remember that I got my first sort of, a, it was like asbestos mass tort 
on case file. And I'll be honest, I just sort of panicked because I knew nothing, you know, about it. And I remember at the time it was before e-filing because that was like 15 years ago or so. And, but we have an administrative office of the court and there are staff attorneys there and some assigned for civil and the staff attorneys are there to help the, you know, trial court judges across the state and they will do research because otherwise we're just sort of trusting that legal counsel and the briefs, you know, the attorneys are submitting us and help, you know, working through it. But I, I just reached out to them and was, and said, tell me every judge in the state that's handled sort of a mass, you know, asbestos claim and so that I could reach out to my colleagues and you know get advice from more seasoned judges but but yeah otherwise we're sort of you know flying on our own and and handling it and and you know and then the next day you walk in and hear you know a juvenile court you know matter so yeah you sort of have to be an expert in everything which means you can't be an expert in anything so Bridget what about Michigan well we don't have a a specialized docket that's like West Virginia. It, there, there's no formal docketing process, but of course we have these mass claims. The, mo- the Probably the one most people have heard of is the litigation around the Flint water crisis. So one of the judges in the circuit court where those cases were brought handled all of those cases. And that one's even trickier because there's also litigation happening in the federal court and the state court judge really has to coordinate with the district court judge and federal court. And the judge who was handling all of those announced an early retirement and stepped down as of this week. And we are scrambling trying to find somebody else who can step in and handle those because as you might imagine, there, there is a lot of history and information in that single judge's head, um, <laughs> that so, were that that it's going to be hard to hard to is, replace him. So did that, is that what sparked the retirement? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. But it is something that we're we're dealing with, and I think what we've decided to do is kind of divide it up and have one judge handle all of the sort of traditional civil pieces of it, and one judge handle all of the probate pieces of it. And we're trying to find senior judges who will come in and just handle those dockets. And that's that's kind of how we handle it, Beth, uh, across the board. It's ad hoc, but our rules and processes have enough flexibility in them that we can usually find one very lovely public servant who will step up and take control of those kinds of cases. But a formal process might make more sense, but we don't have one right now. Yeah, I think you could probably argue it both ways because I think sometimes, you know, the folks who are pointed to these panels really really enjoy them you know it's it's a kind of a bonus it's sometimes maybe they did that kind of work in private practice or whatever and then the downside is exactly what you talked about which is you have folks who they're the only ones kind of with that expertise and so if cases for whatever reason don't go to the panel or need to be handled you know by somebody else you're kind of limiting it but i think overall we kind of we kind of like our special uh, subject matter courts, and and those are really the ones we have in West Virginia. You just hinted at it, Bridget, because you mentioned probate courts. I saw that Michigan has probate courts, which we don't have in West Virginia. What other besides those, or you can tell us about those and any other specific subject matter courts? Yeah, so if we do have probate courts. Every county has one probate judge. Um, and just like with my answer to the business court question, Beth, you could imagine that in some of the smaller counties, the probate 
judge might not be able to have a full-time, it, it might not be a full-time job to just adjudicate traditional probate matters, which are wills, estates, trusts, guardianships, conservatorships. So they're, so the probate courts have concurrent jurisdiction. And we also have even, some, sometimes we even allow uh, judges to, to, to hear cases from surrounding counties just to make sure we make more sense of the docketing. But the other area where probate judges have have exclusive jurisdiction is mental health litigation. So any mental health cases are are brought in probate court. And I don't know about in, in your states, but you have a right to a jury trial on a, a mental health, on many mental health questions. And when I was on the faculty at U of M, we actually litigated a jury trial on whether this particular client of ours should be committed to a facility. So it's a really interesting little area of practice that the probate court judges have jurisdiction over. In many places, they end up pitching in and hearing other cases as well. It's often the case that the probate judge hears all the juvenile cases, the juvenile delinquency cases, and uh, sometimes they share in the family docket and et cetera. I don't know. What about, do you have anything like that, Rhonda, probate jurisdiction or any other specialty courts? So- yeah, so in Arkansas, I think I hinted that we're all the trial court judges or circuit court judges is what we call them. You're constitutionally, they're all general jurisdictions. So they hear probate, probate, juvenile, civil, criminal, and domestic under the constitution. So you're elected to hear everything within our circuit. The judges can get together and decide if if they're going to divide the caseload equitably in a different manner, and then they can submit that plan to the Supreme Court and we would review it. So there are some places, areas of the state where the judges have gotten together and decided that one judge is going to focus on and only hear juvenile matters and one may only hear criminal. And so they have divided it differently as long as the caseload is equitable. And, you know, sometimes it makes sense that a prosecutor that's been there 15 years just gets elected. And it makes sense to not have him here any or her any criminal matters for a while, right? <laughs> but and so it's just, you know, circuit by circuit, it's different because some circuits, they all want to hear everything. And so when I was on the trial bench, I heard juvenile, civil, and criminal. And I love that mix. I didn't hear domestic or probate. And so it just, you know, sort of depends and it comes up to us at the Supreme Court and sometimes we approve it, sometimes we don't. But how about you, Beth? Well, um, that's really about it. But you did raise a really interesting point that I want to comment on. Um, and that is, you know, allowing the local judges in a particular judicial circuit or county or however you divide them to, to decide how to handle cases. And you gave a great example for when you have a former prosecutor as a matter of necessity, you know, normally that that new judge is not going to handle criminal cases for a little while because they were probably involved in the prosecution of them or getting them ready. And we've really been conflicted about how much to step in and get involved with that local sort of decision-making. We really like that judges can work together in the judicial circuits and decide how, you know, how, how best to serve the folks in that county or those counties 
you know, depending on the situation. But sometimes we've had to step in because there was one group who shall remain nameless Mm -hmm. that would give the new judge all the least desirable cases as kind of a, Mm -hmm. what I can only, what appeared to us to be, I don't think it was intended this way, it appeared to us to be a kind of a hazing ritual. Mm -hmm. And so we sort sort of stepped in informally and said, this really needs to stop. Don't make us enter an order because we really respect local jurisdiction and local case handling and all of that. But this is nonsense. So fix it. And they did. So uh, little quirks like that, I suppose, can happen. But that's a really interesting issue you brought up. I don't know, Bridget, if you want to comment on that before we pivot to something else. It's kind of a chief topic. (laughs) No, I, although I feel like I'm, I'm learning, as always, I'm learning a lot from you two, just listening. So uh, I appreciate the education I get here every month. <laughs> uh, it means a lot to me too, actually. And I love doing this. So the last type of court I want to cover is, is something folks have probably heard about before. Sometimes it's called the court of claims. Sometimes it's called a claims commission. But this is a special kind of subject matter court where folks can bring specific kinds of civil cases against the state or its agencies. As a general proposition, the state can't really be sued unless it consents to being sued. That's an overgeneralization. But in West Virginia, we have a court of claims to allow these claims to be litigated. And our court of claims is entirely separate from the judicial branch. It's a, it's a creature of statute. It's administered by the legislative branch exclusively. And it handles a lot of claims that you might imagine that are routine. Someone has in an automobile accident with a Department of Highways truck. There's a giant pothole on a state road and somebody's car is damaged and they want to pursue a claim against the state for that. Although we also have a lot of statutes that allow the state to be sued in in the judicial branch, which is kind of separate. So it's a little bit confusing, but nonetheless, I want to talk about court of claims or claims commission. Do you have something like that in Arkansas? And how does it work, Rhonda? So for once we do, (laughs) I can say yes today. So we have what's called the Arkansas State Claims Commission has five members. It's appointed by the governor. At least two have to be attorneys and they serve five-year terms. In Arkansas, Arkansas and Alabama, I think, are the only two states that have constitutions that say provisions specifically exactly the same, that the state shall never be made a defendant in her courts. So under current constitution, under our current interpretation, I'm saying it very carefully, (laughs) Current precedent, it says you cannot sue the state for money damages um, under any circumstance. And so um, if there's any claim against the state for money damages, it goes to the state claims commission. So they would be very active. Bridget, what about in Michigan? Yeah, Michigan has a court of claims. Um, It is within the judicial branch. Again, I'm learning a lot. I just, you know, always assume the way we do it in Michigan is the way everyone does it, but apparently not. But the court of claims statute does get amended from time to time, but it is the legislature's formal statement on how and when somebody can sue uh, the state or one of the state agencies or state actors. And it used to be that the Court of Claims was designated in the circuit court in Lansing, Michigan, which is where the capital is, you know, which is where the legislature sits. So the circuit court judges in Lansing, Ingham County, Michigan, 
we're also the court of claims judges. So if you had a, a case against the state, you filed it there, no matter where the case happened. In 2013, the legislature moved the court of claims from the Ingham County Circuit Court to the Michigan Court of Appeals, to our intermediate appellate court. And the legislation requires the Michigan Supreme Court to assign four of the Court of Appeals judges to sit as Court of Claims judges. So the, the four that we select, they serve two-year term, do both. They hear cases as a trial court, uh, mm -hmm. these Court of Claims cases, and then they also continue to hear appeals. Obviously, they don't sit in panels and adjudicate their own appeals. It, it's a it's a bit awkward because the, it's a collegial court, you know, the Michigan Court of Appeals, and they all, as you know, serve in different panels of three. They all work together from time to time. And so I think it probably is hard to have to review your benchmates' work, and it's not ideal. There's some interest right now, certainly from the Court of Appeals judges and from some of the judicial associations who support them to changing this again and putting it back in the circuit courts, even if not in exclusively in one circuit court, spreading it out around the state and among different circuit court judges. But I don't know if that legislation will get off the ground. I don't know about all of you, but we're, we don't have any more legislative days before the election. And I think there's only going to be two legislative days after the election. So I am I'm not sure what will happen with that. Um, so right now, our Court of Claims is for judges who are Court of Appeals judges selected by the Michigan Supreme Court. That is so uh, interesting because I sort of parked in my head the Court of Claims over in uh, an area knowing that we don't handle it. But then I thought to myself as I looked at Michigan, well, why wouldn't we? I mean, because we're sort of in charge of adjudicating things. So very interesting, kind of in the weeds, but kind of an interesting balance where the roles of the legislature and the judiciary overlap. I will say what maybe the hardest case I've ever had, and it's still pending, so you'll have to wait and see where it lands, but what was a case we heard last term about the Court of Claims Act and the court's jurisdiction. Um, and it was, it's a massive mix-up of sovereign immunity and supremacy clause jurisprudence and this statute, which is like most statutes, not perfectly worded, right? I mean, you know, it's humans who write these things. And I spent more time trying to understand the intersection of sovereign immunity and the supremacy clause. And it really hurt my brain. I, I mean, I asked the lawyers that argument, I'm like, what is sovereign immunity? Like, is it a defense? Is it a constitutional norm? Like, what is it? And everyone was like, don't know. <laughs> so it's a really interesting, I think, if you're interested in hard questions, usually court of claims jurisdiction, if you're in a state like Michigan, where uh, you have to decide these things can be certainly fascinating. And I'll just jump in, Bridget, we have spent our court since 2016, very contentious about sovereign immunity, and written extensively on it. And the key question about whether it's an affirmative defense or jurisdictional, Again, because our constitution has it pretty specific. It's we have spent weeks and weeks and weeks on this. And yes, it gives you headaches. <laughs> that may be um, and we may have to do a podcast on something. <laughs> I was just gonna say we might have to because I have spent a ton of time trying to figure this out. And we have concepts that overlap and people seem to use interchangeably. We have statutory immunity and we have sovereign immunity. Yeah. The, the lawyers don't yeah. awesomely do a great job of keeping them straight. Everyone kind of throws it out there. And I'm not sure any of us entirely have pinned it down. I've actually thought about pitching a law review article to WVU 
because although I'm not sure I can make sense of it. So I'm really fascinated to know whether you make sense of it before you step down from the judiciary. I'll keep you in the loop. I will tell you, my husband, when he was on the faculty at U of M, he taught a seminar on sovereign immunity one semester because he wanted to learn it. He was like, I, I just have to teach sovereign immunity because I don't understand it. And so that's one way, one way professors learn new areas is yeah. teach a course in it. it, it oh, I'd be fascinated. Like I said, ours is, I went back to like 18, I don't know, 60. <laughs> yeah. I won Super Bowl. I spent at the Hendricks Library instead of the watching the Super Bowl researching sovereign immunity and it scarred me. But anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about you, my friend. Yeah, it says but... more about me than sovereign immunity. <laughs> it's kind of cool and kind of not all, all together. <laughs> okay, with that, we've just launched another idea for a podcast. We'll put that on the list because our list was getting a little bit short. So thanks for that. But now it is time for the lightning round. And this is a part of the podcast where we give quick answers to questions that may or may not have anything to do with our work or today's topic. So I'll say we'll answer in alphabetical state order, Arkansas, Michigan, and then West Virginia. So we will begin with you, Rhonda. When you work from your home office, what is the most likely thing to distract you? Charlie and Macy, my dogs, for sure. And it's because of the, you know, delivery trucks. <laughs> well, I don't have any pets, no longer have kids at home. And my first answer is I, work quite well in my home office. But if there is a distraction, it's getting outside for a walk or a jog or a bike ride or something like that. I, it, it is a lot easier to get up from my desk and do some quick exercise when I'm in my home office than my office office where there's nowhere really to do that. Um, so I don't know, that probably means it's that's not a terrible distraction. What about you, Beth? I'd say that's a pretty valid one. Uh, my house gets particularly clean and laundry particularly caught up when I'm working for my home office because I'm easily distracted by other tasks. So that is probably what happens. But for example, today I'm recording from my actual office at the Capitol. And I hope you have not heard the leaf blower in the background blowing our fall leaves. But if you did, I apologize for that. And so that's today's distraction. <laughs> Second question, of course, I thought of this because Twitter has been kind of in the news. All three of us kind of met on Twitter, but that's been a few years now and social media is always evolving. So I thought it would be fun to talk about what is your current favorite social media site? The first one you turn to when you just have a few minutes of free time. Is it Twitter or is it something else? Rhonda. It's still Twitter. I'm still, I still get on there and look to see honestly what all the pellet Twitter conversations are and usually they're educating me. It's still Twitter for me as well. Although I, I will confess that I am on less and less. I'm almost never on any other site and Twitter I've even tried to very consciously cut back on. I've like been trying to do better at deep work and concentration and all of the above. Uh, I think the hyperactive hive mind is not great for me. So I'm, I've been working on limiting it. How about you, Beth? 
The same here, actually. So I still probably the first one I look at is Twitter. I do venture over into Instagram and I'm occasionally am following the Cincinnati Zoo site lately for whatever reason and their baby hippo and baby cheetah or whatever, which I sort of have fun with. But Twitter's still where I start and all of our friends on Apollo Twitter is still kind of the home base. Question three. What is the kindest thing that someone has done for you lately or that you have done for someone else? One thing I could think of recently is that when we were in St. Louis, you guys know my husband and I, um, I left something, and I'm not going to say what, but I left something really important in the hotel room. And I got back to Arkansas and the hotel would not ship it to me. And they said I had to come back in person. And I was sort of panicked and my son reached out and it just, he figured it out and solved it. And so he, you know, got a hold of a courier service in St. Louis and got them to like pick it up, go pick it up and FedEx it to me back. And it was like, one, it was just a cool, very kind thing that he's like, I got it covered. And then Cole is like, my son is now at the age that he's solving problems for me. You know. So anyway, that was just a recent thing that it was just, he just stepped in and handled it. And what about you guys? My first thought is the kindness that the two of you have shown me recently. I had a rough, as you, as you both know, maybe listeners do because they're on Twitter, but my, I lost my dad in August and he was a really big force in my life and then had some health problems and had to have spine surgery. And you two just, I don't know if it was like, a you just decided she needs it, but you reached out to me a lot. You sent me lovely messages. You sent me flowers, you sent me chocolates and you brought tears to my eyes a few times that it, uh, I'm so grateful to have uh, such good friends in the two of you. Oh, that's nice. And the feeling obviously is very mutual and I won't too, too far off the lightning round, but I could go on and on. And so mine started as a kind of thing that I was doing, but then it flipped around as, as it sometimes does. A lawyer contacted me who I did not know several months ago and asked me to officiate his wedding just this past Saturday. And for what I talked to them, he and his fiance on Zoom, and for whatever reason, I thought, well, I'm just going to do this, even though I have no, I don't know these folks it was going to be in a really pretty place in the fall in the new river near the new river gorge in West Virginia. So I thought, well, that'll be pretty uh, outdoor wedding. And I just did it. And it was almost like, I felt like there was a message from the universe that this is a good idea. And so I went and did the rehearsal on Friday and the wedding on Saturday. And it ended up, they were so grateful that I did this and they wrote the nicest note that I have ever probably ever received from anybody in this job about how it was meaningful for them, for me to take the time to officiate their wedding. And, you know, just when you think you're doing somebody a favor, you realize that they are the ones doing you a favor. So it was a very cool thing. And I had a wonderful weekend as a result. So speaking of gratitude, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. And so let's talk about what is your go-to dish or other food item that you take to holiday gatherings of family or friends, the one that everyone wants you to bring or that you always serve at your house? So I make homemade yeast rolls and that is usually what everybody wants. And if someone's sick in my family, like my parents or somebody, they want me to bring those over to their house. So you probably already knew this about me, but nobody really looks <laughs> to me to make 
food and bring it. Now, I, I we sometimes host Thanksgiving and I actually always enjoy it, but it is stressful for me and a ton of work because I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm not a natural at it. So really, I should just bring the wine. And chocolate. And chocolate. Yeah. Everybody has a role and that's an important one. So I have two. First of all, my husband grew up eating mashed turnips on Thanksgiving and nobody likes them except my husband and his mother. And so I bring them because no one will make them if we go anywhere. And of course, but no one really wants me to bring them except my husband who loves them. And it's actually rutabagas, as I found out after years of making the right turnip combination. But what I like to bring, what everyone does enjoy, are Buckeyes, which are, of course, as you know, peanut butter balls dipped in chocolate that resemble our beloved Ohio nut, the Buckeye. So I bring those whenever I can. And for this year, for Thanksgiving, I will be in the state of Michigan. So I may have to look up my friend Bridget sometimes during, sometime during that Thanksgiving week and bring her some Buckeyes. That sounds awesome. I accept. <laughs> and that is a wrap. And the end of this episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. We'll be back again soon. But in the meantime, please follow us all on social media, especially Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast with three sitting state Supreme Court justices. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. Remember, the opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.